welcome to the Global Inquirer. Thank you so much for Amy to, for those awesome graphics. My name is Emmy Lockwood and I'm the Editor-in-Chief here. The Global Inquirer is an undergraduate research podcast that uses case studies to examine how global trends impact real lives. But today we're going to be talking about Charlottesville. I have the honor of presenting to you the fourth live episode of the Global Inquirer, Houses to Homes, Equitable Solutions for Charlottesville. So generally, our live episodes focus on the work that our team does, the research they do, and they present it with an expert. But given that we chose to cover Charlottesville, we thought it would, it would be more appropriate to bring in community members to lead the discussion. At the National Geographic Symposium last month, I learned that good journalism isn't about giving voice to the voiceless, but rather it's about engaging, interacting, and listening with communities. We don't want to talk about the community. We don't want to walk, talk to the community. We want to talk with them. So in that, in that light, today is about honoring the community members and the work that they've done in Charlottesville and giving them a unique platform to share their thoughts. So I would also like to acknowledge some of our privilege as members of the UVA community. For example, I live on an apartment building off um, 10th and Page, and it was built in 2013. So I am paying into a gentrified complex, but I didn't know going into it the, all the implications that this area had. So that's what today is about. We want to shed light on an issue that few students know about. So thank you all for being here today, especially those tuning in online. There will be a Q&A session at the end, so keep that in mind um, if you have any questions along the presentation. And we will also have a light reception afterwards. So without further ado, I'd like to present um, our researchers on our team, Roma Chitko and Tyler Hinkle. Hi guys, so I'm Roma. Uh, like Emmy said, I was one of the researchers for this episode. Hi, I'm Tyler. I'm also one of the researchers for this episode. Um, so, like she said, uh, the Global Inquirer usually focuses on the uh, international trends in uh, the global community. Um, but for this episode, since we host and produce our live episodes in Charlottesville, we wanted a topic that was more relevant to our audience and to the community as a whole. And it took a while, but we eventually settled on discussing the issues of housing and homelessness and how it relates to larger social issues in Charlottesville. And it kind of came about from the combination of two different pitches that we had. Uh, one more on like the history and how we've reached our current state of inequality in our community. And another focusing more on current uh, social organizations that work within the community to uh, solve these problems. Thank you, Roma. Um, I want to thank you all for coming out tonight. It's really great to see all you all here, um, your smiling faces. Um, we're glad you're here, not just because we're glad that you're going to be able to listen to what we're going to talk about tonight, but also because you're actually the experts sitting in the room. And I'm going to explain that later. But as Roma said, we went through a lot to come to the decision of working on this kind of episode where we work with the community. Um, there's a lot that we came through um, in terms of, as you'll read in the flyers, um, in terms of terms that a lot of people don't know about, like redlining, 
and uh, restrictive covenants, which there's a lot of work being done in Charlottesville to reveal what happened and how that has impacted communities, not just then, but even now. And so this concept of people who have been historically denied um, for years in the past, and now this is about 60 years since the Civil Rights Act, and things still haven't gotten better. Uh, it made us feel like you know it's, it's time for you know a community discussion of what we need to do to move forward. So, although I may not be an expert on the history of uh, you know, restricting people from the housing market, a lot of what I learned actually was from Professor Carl's class um, on race and uh, real estate. What I do know is that with every housing development, there are two key needs. The first being uh, community action. A lot of uh, the talk right now in terms of uh, developing housing uh, comes with um, mixed income. And what we've seen is that a lot of these do not actually have a lot of community cohesion or action because people don't know each other. It's not a neighborhood. The other thing that people need is investment. And, and capital for them to actually make change. And the issue that we're seeing now in Charlottesville is a lack of both of these, or one of these, in each of the areas of uh, minority communities. And so you may be wondering, well, if we're in this kind of pickle where we don't have investment and we don't have community action, what can we actually do? And that's why we're here tonight. We're here to get the ball rolling and start talking about what we can do to move forward and find solutions. So Tyler gave you guys kind of a very brief blurb of history of Charlottesville because that's what he's been studying and that's what he's interested in. Um, but for me, the first time that I'd ever even heard the term urban renewal was in a class that I took my first semester at the university, which frankly I count myself lucky because I learned about uh, issues facing the Charlottesville community I think much earlier than most other students. Um, Frankly, I think a lot of people don't know about the things that are going on outside of the UVA bubble at all. Um, and what stuck with me the most from this class was a documentary that we watched on Vinegar Hill because the documentarians talked about not only the economic value of holding property, but also the social implications and how property is a form of tangible wealth that you can pass on to future generations, but it's also uh, it gives you roots, it gives you a voice, it gives you a place to call home, somewhere where you can feel safe. And when that's taken away from you, it has social implications that last through across generations. Um, so since that semester, I've had the opportunity to work uh, with a lot of different organizations around Charlottesville that work in different um, public housing areas. So there's like, for example, there's City of Promise, which serves the areas of 10th and Page, Star Hill, and West Haven to create um, a community network for people who live in those areas. Um, there's the Haven, which is not only a day shelter, but also somewhere that people can go uh, when they're looking for sustainable housing for the resources and the support that they need. Um, and so bringing all those things together was part of the inspiration for this episode because we wanted to be able to showcase um, things that people in the community are doing, whether they be heads of nonprofits or activists, uh, to address things that we often see as insurmountable issues, but actually have very tangible solutions that exist today. Thank you, Irma. Uh, I think that kind of takes us back to what Emmy said to kind of start things off, which is that we don't really want to uh, talk about the community 
or talk for the community, but we want to talk together. And that takes me back to a quote that I heard someone say uh, a few weeks ago, which is, that, uh, which is by um, an activist in, in Australia. Uh, she said, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if your passion and your drive to, to make change is bound with what I want to do, then we can work together. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to work together, you all, and then everyone here on the panel, on finding solutions that could work for everyone. And so we're going to turn everything over to the community now, starting off with uh, Ryan. Do I get a handheld mic as well, or just the lapel? Yeah, you want to stand up? Oh, no, I can sit. That's fine. Also, don't worry about the slides. They're not, they're not necessary. <laughs> um, so my name is Brian Cameron. Um, I'm actually also a fourth year student at the university, um, but since about my second year, um, there we go. Wait. Can you hear me? There we go. Um, my name's Brian. I'm a fourth year. Um, I began studying some of these issues of uh, race and housing um, my second year when I also took race and real estate with Professor Carl. Um, he's been uh, instrumental to um, my growth as a student and a community member in that regard. Um, then at the beginning of what was my third year, um, obviously the events of August 2017 uh, jolted a lot of students or otherwise complacent members of the community the trying to gain a better understanding of our community's uh, history and current inequities, um, things like the history of Vinegar Hill and affordable housing um, and gentrification jumped out. Um, what I'm going to cover in my presentation right now um, is going to try to specifically examine uh, some of the influence that the university has had on Charlottesville and some of the negative consequences um, that have come about from that. Um, but before I get there, I guess uh, I also want to mention how Charlottesville is actually far from unique um, in a national context. Uh, pretty much everywhere in the United States has had um, a similar history of racist housing policy, um, be it urban renewal, racially restrictive covenants, forced expulsion of black communities, or gentrification. But a theme that I think should undergird local studies um, is that we shouldn't approach these issues as distant researchers, but rather keep in mind that we are at once active citizens capable of engaging in the present moment and trying to apply um, some of this research for a greater good. Um, so I'll start about in the 1970s um, with urban renewal uh, sponsored and sanctioned by the university. The UVA was running short on hospital space around this time, uh, the 1970s, so it sought to expand its medical campus. While well, the university considered areas uh, around the outskirts of town, it, it ultimately decided to expand um, close to central grounds uh, in a community called Gospel Hill, um, which was an urban renewal site. Well, uh, it was a former black community and had been identified as an urban renewal site by uh, urban planning firm Harlan Bartholomew and Associates, which was actually the same firm that assisted Charlottesville in the destruction of Vinegar Hill. Um, Prior to uh, Gospel Hill's redevelopment, it was a small but thriving middle-class black community uh, with historical significance dating back to before the Civil War. Um, UVA had leveraged its dominant purchasing power 
to gradually buy out all the residents of Gospel Hill and then subsequently put up the health system um, where we all know it is today. Um, but you could hardly tell today that this was once a historic African African American community as the university had wiped it from the landscape um, and collective memory. During this period as well, um, following integration and co-education, UVA's student population began to expand at an unprecedented rate. Um, between 1970 and 1980, um, UV's student population grew by 6,000 students. Fast forward to 2000, um, UV was at about uh, 18,500 students. Uh, but during this period, um, in both 1991 and 2003, the city of Charlottesville had actually made um, two pretty significant changes in its zoning that would fundamentally alter the landscape of affordable housing in Charlottesville. So in 1991, Charlottesville downzones um, most of the residential areas of the city, um, which means that it made it so that you could only build um, one home to house one family, only one unit of, unit of housing um, on most of the residential land in the city. Today, single-family zoning encompasses 55% of all city land. The fiscal theory behind single-family zoning for the city was that single-family homes appreciate in value, particularly in a strong housing market, um, which generates greater tax revenues for the city and fills city coffers. Um, following the end of annexation in Virginia, um, the city could no longer grow its tax base out. It now had to grow it up somehow. So this was a preferred way for the city to do that. But as single-family homes appreciate in value, they also become more expensive, which makes it more difficult for low-income residents to afford to live, generally. In 2003, however, um, the Charlottesville actually kind of took a step back on this decision and re-upzoned Venable and Jefferson Park Avenue, two of the main university student neighborhoods. Um, which allowed higher density student apartments and effectively gave UVA the green light to continue admitting more and more students. Um, with this zoning change, the university, or sorry, the city also created a number of mixed use corridors, um, including along West Main Street, which provided a pathway for developers uh, to significantly increase density in the backyards of many historically black neighborhoods, including Fifeville and 10th and Page. Um, right on the outside of UVA's um, core community. Then since the 2000s, Charlottesville has experienced overall an unprecedented rate of growth and demand in the housing market, um, kind of at the same time with the back to the city movement, rise of local tech and finance industries, and of course, uh, the growth of the university. Since 2000, UVA's student population has grown by another 4,500 students, 4,000 of which have been in the off-grounds private housing market. So while UVA may not have been the only contributing force to gentrification in this era, uh, it's certainly been a major one. Um, that's without a doubt. Um, scholars have also identified a pro an overall process of studentification in many college towns like Charlottesville, um, the transformation of West Main Street in particular, um, with the uh, developments of many luxury student apartment complexes since about 2012, um, has kind of exemplified this. West Main Street has transformed into like an urban playground um, for many students with these luxury apartment developments. 
Um, developers have specifically cited UV's ongoing enrollment growth rates as a reason for entering the Charlottesville market and quite literally entering the backyards of many low-income communities of color. Um, studentification also trains students into becoming gentrifiers later in life as sort of apprentice gentrifiers, um, and, but also in the present moment exploits existing inequalities of power um, to specifically locate luxury apartments in the backyard of low-income communities of color. So this is part of how we've gotten uh, to the landscape of gentrification and affordable housing in Charlottesville today. Um, kind of simultaneous as the student growth has happened, uh, median home values in 10th and Page rose from 67,000 in 2000 to 160,000 in 2010, uh, far outpacing inflation and wages. Simultaneously, 20% uh, of this neighborhood's black residents moved out. In Fifeville, median home value rose from 74,000 to 220,000 in the same 10 years. Meanwhile, 300 black residents moved out. Citywide today, uh, more than 3,000 families spend over half their income on housing. Um, affordable housing, or lack thereof, is certainly at crisis levels, to say the least. Charlottesville is experiencing today a period of intense, gro intense growth, um, often at the benefit of students or otherwise um, affluent, uh, highly educated, and predominantly white populations, while at the expense of low-income residents of color. But what can the, res what can the university do? Um, because I think this creates a pretty obvious case that something should be done. Um, many people argue over the university maybe expanding its on-grounds um, housing availability and options in order to relieve pressure in the private housing market. Um, I think this would have to come in tandem with uh, any other sort of, or a number of other solutions just simply because of the size and scale of the issue. Um, like, in, like in 2016, the Board of Visitors approved uh, 500 new on-grounds beds for the uh, new Brandon Avenue apartments um, on-grounds residence area. Um, but in just the two years since that approval, enrollment has grown by 600. Um, on-grounds dorm uh, construction is just not gonna be able to keep pace um, with that rate of growth. Um, I personally believe that we need to have uh, an earnest conversation um, about kind of the university's stature and status as being a public good quote-unquote, in the Charlottesville area, um, considering the many uh, negative impacts that have been uh, kind of evidenced throughout my presentation. Um, I think one way that the university could try to uh, address um, these negative consequences would be to make payments and move taxes to the city uh, in order to support their ongoing affordable housing initiatives, um, ongoing as of like in this year's um, city budget um, that is going through the approval process right now. Um, they're starting to look at levying um, or allocating significantly more funding uh, for affordable housing initiatives. Um, but the university is not quite doing its part for that yet. Um, as a 501c3 organization, the university's uh, $10 million, um, sorry, $100 million worth of city property um, are not taxable. 
Um, besides a user fee that they pay for fire services, the university only contributes about $100,000 to the city each year, which is quite literally 1% of what would be its fair tax value. Um, some of our other favorite peer institutions that we like to compare ourselves to, like Harvard or Yale, make pilots, or sorry, payments in lieu of ta taxes to their home communities every year to the tune of millions. Um, so this is the ongoing pressing issue um, and the university is mounting um, externalities against low-income communities of color simply must be accounted for in some way. All right. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> so um, our next speaker, she's a little bit delayed right now, um, but she is currently making a movie, so we're going to watch her trailer. A movie about Charlotte. But it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. There's a certain perception of Charlottesville, and that's because the story of Charlottesville is often whitewashed. There's a whole story of Charlottesville that no one knows about, and that's the story of Black Charlottesville. Throughout this documentary, we're going to discuss the legacies of Black Charlottesville and how they remain unbroken despite the barriers, issues, and policies we face on a daily. First of all, let's be clear. A chosen few can speak without fear. I'm from Hardy Drive, Slim. I'm really from here. Listen, listen, listen. Remember the open Remember the bears. No, I ain't sleeping on the Titans. No chloroform, but burly high with undefeated, unscored on. What? That's kind of crazy. Unscored on. Not even a field goal sign. Unscored on. This is all real. All facts. All excellent. No matter where it leads, no matter what abuses it may bring, I'm going to tell the truth. Um, so Tanisha's delayed because she's actually meeting the mayor, so she's going to have a lot to tell us. But um, I think we could move on to talk about, start our roundtable discussion. And so Hi. My name is Andrew Carl. I'm an associate professor of history and African American studies here at UVA. Um, as mentioned earlier, I also teach a course on um, the history of redlining um, and, well, the history of housing discrimination and um, real estate exploitation from the era of redlining all the way up to the subprime crisis. It's called uh, From Redline to Subprime Race and Real Estate in the U.S. Um, and, and through that course, uh, I've had tried to find as many opportunities for students to do meaningful work and engagement in the community uh, and to begin to, um, as Brian um, really aptly put it a moment ago, really knit themselves within and understand themselves not just as students here but also as, as citizens and as members of the community and do the type of engaged work that um, can make a meaningful difference. Um, in bettering conditions here in Charlottesville. So uh, with that in mind, I, I want to, I guess, start um, by first having um, perhaps Brandon, if you yeah. could speak a little bit about the work that you're doing, um, mm -hmm. both um, 
here in, in Charlottesville, and also as well what you've, what you've seen um, in your work with students and how um, the work of students in Charlottesville can um, be improved going forward. Absolutely. All right. Uh, I'm Brandon Collins. I work for FAR. It's the Public Housing Association of Residents. Um, FAR has been around since 1998. Uh, and we are the federally mandated, federally recognized uh, representative of uh, all 376 homes in Charlottesville. Uh, it's about 900 people, 80% uh, African American. Um, and uh, so we're the official resident council and resident advisory board, which gives us, um, you know, some certain rights under HUD rules and, and some other things. Um, our mission at FAR is to educate and empower low-income residents to protect and improve their own communities through collective action. And we, we take that mission pretty seriously. Um, I did, I did want to just say uh, thanks for the note about acknowledging privilege. This is a, a pretty privilege-heavy room. Uh, today, um, our board chair couldn't be here tonight, um, and she would have been uh, a great voice to have here. I am not a public housing resident. Uh, I am a Charlottesville native, uh, and as a white, sort of middle class Charlottesville native, I was pretty much clueless about housing, gentrification, race. Uh, Throughout most of my life, it wasn't really even until after high school that I really had any sense of the history uh, of, of what Charlottesville's been through, uh, much less the impact that it has on the, on the daily, uh, as Tanisha says. And I think her documentary is going to really seek to, to point out a lot of that history that, that folks just don't really realize. Um, so um, what we do on, on every day is organized with residents um, to make policy change um, with the housing authority. Uh, we assist residents in individual cases. We run an internship program for low-income residents to organize and learn leadership development. Uh, and we also organize around the issue of redevelopment of public housing, which has an, ex an amazing relationship to the history of Charlottesville uh, and, and uh, major impact on the present, I think. Um, so, you know, as we talk about urban renewal, which happened uh, at Vinegar Hill, it also happened at Garrett, uh, Hartman's Mill, uh, and, and this sort of urban renewal under a different name at Gospel Hill. Um, these things really did have the devastating consequences that we all kind of sort of allude to, but those are consequences that are felt daily by uh, low-income residents in Charlottesville. Um, and it goes back, and I think it has a direct relationship to the university. It goes way back. It comes back to when enslaved people were first brought to Charlottesville uh, and built this town. And it has a lot to do with Jefferson uh, and his role in the revolution and as the president of a new country, uh, establishing a new economic system um, where he had a plantation, not necessarily a successful plantation, but uh, one that uh, certainly was went on to be a model for the rest of the country in the new economic system. Uh, the creation of the University of Virginia and the creation of Charlottesville. This was all built on black workers' backs, um, whether they were enslaved or not. Uh, and the rest of us really benefited from it. Uh, throughout all that mess, and in a lot of instances, these great crimes of history, 
uh, folks had these communities and they were devastated through the urban renewal process. And that has a relationship to public housing because in order to do urban renewal and, and wipe out a neighborhood, taking their wealth, taking their business district, taking their political, social power, uh, sometimes spiritual uh, power, um, taking that away uh, and giving very little in return, the one thing they, they did get in return was public housing was established uh, because you had to relocate the people who were there. Um, when we look at that, we look at the present and we go, wow, that was a raw deal. Um, public housing has been underfunded since its inception. Um, we've also seen the welfare state diminished. We've seen uh, uh, the drug war and mass incarceration. And this continuation of white supremacy in Charlottesville, including through racist zoning practices that we all kind of look back at and we say, you know, not in my backyard, we just want our community. People don't necessarily look at the map of racial covenants uh, that were included uh, to, to keep blacks out of neighborhoods uh, and from buying property in neighborhoods and put that map uh, right on top of a current zoning map and you'll see pretty much the same map. Uh, people don't always realize that. But if you look at that, it has the effect of having a racial covenant. It's the same effect as redlining and it exists today. So these are the circumstances that our black population lives under. Uh, and our low-income population, because our uh, public housing population is becoming increasingly uh, uh, white. Uh, it's not just blacks anymore. And, and so we've got this immense housing crisis in Charlottesville, and uh, it has to be addressed. And we say, okay, these were crimes. The effects weren't just the wealth loss, though you could put a number on that. Uh, but the city actually owes for the potential that could have happened in this community. Uh, and we see one way to deal with that is through the redevelopment of public housing. However, uh, just as was mentioned, there is not uh, capital, there is not uh, financial investment in this. And uh, our organization has organized with residents to say, you know, enough is enough, this has to get done, and we're going to use this as a vehicle to make amends for the past, and we're going to have a brighter future. Otherwise, we're going to perish. It's all going to disappear. The federal government has said they are not interested there are, uh, there are definitely a call from HUD currently to find as many ways to eliminate public housing or to uh, convert it into something else or to privatize it. Uh, and in Charlottesville, we've done an amazing job of not letting that happen. We're one of the few places in the country where we've been able to take a stand on some of these things. However, we need the investment from this community, from the university, because uh, we're not getting it from the federal government, and residents have had to take this in their own hands. We developed what we call a positive vision for redevelopment, um, working with residents to articulate a vision for what they want for their communities, uh, and it's been a stunning success. Um, we've not only just gotten resident engagement, uh, but we've actually gotten a ton of seats on boards of, and committees. We currently have a contract, an MOU with the, with the housing authority, and with developers um, for phase one of redevelopment, of renovation of a 105-unit apartment building that houses seniors and people with disabilities, and to build uh, 62 new homes on some vacant land the Housing Authority has as a first step towards the eventual redevelopment of public housing. That will not only uh, redevelop our public housing, providing better quality life for 900-some people, um, but also build additional affordable housing in this community. And nobody's really taking things on on that scale. Now, Housing Authority doesn't have that kind of money. We've found some partners. We've got some uh, philanthropists involved, 
and throughout uh, many years of dealing with the city of Charlottesville, we've gotten a lot of public support for the city to put uh, money into this game in big numbers, and we're encouraging them to put even more to look at uh, the crisis where we know we need 3,000 to 4,000 uh, affordable homes for people, whether they're new homes or making homes more affordable. Uh, and that's a lot of money. And when we graph that out on a chart, it's looking like about a half billion dollar problem. Uh, that's not so bad. That's something that can be done. And in a resource rich community like Charlottesville, I think we can do that. So I'm going to leave it there for now because <laughs> I talked a whole lot. <laughs> um, one thing, in the, as, you, as you well know, organizing is so key to social and political change. And here, especially with, um, you know, the, with tenants as a class and, and those who are in the rental market, it's, it's really divided between uh, residents of the city and the student population. And the students have, as, as, as Brian, who's written a brilliant thesis, I've been uh, honored to advise um, in the political and social thought program, has, has really shown how the effect that students have had um, and the growing presence of students in the rental market on everyone else in, in, um, in the housing market in the city. And I guess my question is, is you know, how, um, how can students who, who themselves are also being exploited mm -hmm. through um, rental markets, who themselves are being oftentimes, often by the same landlords, um, mm -hmm. but yet are um, also part of the problem mm -hmm. in some ways, even if they don't intend to, mm -hmm. how, can, how can we begin to find ways, or what do you, and this is, I guess is a question for both of you, um, for students um, to begin to, uh, students who are on, in the private market in particular, mm -hmm. begin to work with other tenant organizations and also begin to find commonality and um, in the common struggle toward social change here on this very issue of housing. I would love for you to go first, <laughs> and then I can kind of... Uh, well, our, our organization has had a pretty great relationship with student organizers mm -hmm. in the past, and we've, we've got some folks working with us now. Um, you know, there's a ton of resources at the university, um, regular folks who want to get involved, who have knowledge, um, and who can use their bodies to help our situation. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of things that... Uh, I think should be noted, and, and that is that students at the university have immense power. Um, if you look at the living wage effort, um, I know it's been many decades and it's not a fight that's over, but uh, it's a fight worth taking on and it's a fight that people have, uh, have really put out there and it's working. And you know sometimes these efforts really take a lot, but the student population can say to the university, We've got a new president, I think, who's, who's willing to listen and say, look, we're talking about race at the university. We're talking about enslaved workers. We're talking about memorials. We're talking about what it is we can do. You can do more. I don't want to go to a university uh, that is not paying reparations to the community, that it's, that it's hurting. And then we can talk about what are those policies, what are those things that we can look at and look at policies. But I think there are a couple of key things that students could really get behind, and, and that's really saying we need this university to do something meaningful for this community. Um, and this university has immense resources and a whole lot of money that they don't seem to want to part with, and I know that's a hard fight to, to take on, but it's a fight that's necessary. We could get some money from the university for public housing redevelopment. Um, that would really show a community commitment. If we could get some uh, money from the university in the form, forms of the uh, payment in lieu of taxes, um, 
that that could be a good deal because one of the questions that you always hear about development in Charlottesville, and you saw it with the West Main stuff and these big buildings going up and uh, and and these promises being made. Well, they're going to bring in these taxes, and we can use those taxes to help us deal with our affordable housing situation. But it never happens that way. It never winds up in the hands of people who need it. Um, but if you had that kind of change coming from the university on top of other development, it, it would have a massive impact. Um, and that's money that is sorely needed. If the city of Charlottesville is looking at a half billion dollar problem, um, you know, certainly 10 million in taxes from the University mm -hmm. of Virginia could go a long ways. There, there are some other policies that could help, but uh, direct cash contributions could help immensely. They also have a lot of land. They have a lot of things they can do. Um, paying a living wage is a really great start, and we're really glad to see them moving in that direction, and we want to encourage that, and, that, and I hope the student population here does that. Um, building student housing is fine. You know, they're doing the master plan over there on Emmett Street, uh, and I hear that they're looking at putting in some uh, affordable uh, student housing, but also some uh, affordable worker housing, so they could do some workforce housing for low-wage workers at the university. Um, that would help as well. It's not just building student housing, but all the workers who aren't really paid enough uh, to live in Charlottesville to provide some more uh, housing, you know, making the university a partner in developing a strategy to address the affordable housing crisis. And students have that power. Uh, you, you don't have to demonstrate. You don't have to take over the rotunda, though that's fun. You don't have to go into, you know, anybody's office and take it over. That is totally fun. I'm just going to throw that out there. It's like the funnest thing ever. And you can organize with your buddies to make that happen. Um, but it, it does take a willingness to connect with folks like FAR. Um, the Charlottesville Low Income Housing Coalition has a really good read on strategies and policies that can really make a difference, um, particularly as it relates to the university, and, and figure out what those demands might be uh, and go out and make it happen. Um, and, you know, you are what makes this university happen, and there is immense power in that, and I hope you'll, hope you'll use that. I would definitely second um, everything you said about like the direct contributions from UVA to the city. Um, well, the figure you mentioned earlier for like full-scale redevelopment of public housing being like half a billion, roughly. The affordable R housing crisis. I think for... Public housing, 150 million. 150 million would be really good for uh, redevelopment. I, I think if we could get another 50 million out, we'll be all right. And make it mm -hmm. Well, either way, though, you know, we may talk in the abstract sometimes about how much wealth might be harbored in the universe or in the Charlottesville community. Um, thinking about billionaires here, millionaires there. The university has an endowment of $9.5 billion, even in terms of what could be accessible tomorrow if they wanted it to. The Strategic Investment Fund, I believe, is $2.5 billion. Um, that's money that could be tapped into if we wanted to. Um, the issue is not, is the money there? The issue is, is there a will to do something with it? Um, I would definitely agree. Um, that there could be a lot more um, student organizing um, among the general student population to try to make that happen. Um, even it's just kind of like informal ad hoc, like President Ryan always does these like morning run things. Like why not show up to some of them and just like heckle him for like a marathon and be like, hey, so what do you think of like investing more in affordable housing? Um, I don't, he seems like a friendly enough guy. He might be amenable or open to that. 
Um, I would also, again, like to underscore some of the points that you brought up as well, um, in that in an exorbitantly priced and exploitative housing market, um, it fails both low-income residents and students somewhat equally. Um, I know a lot of students personally, maybe some of you in the room here as well, have dealt with crummy landlords who put you in pretty decrepit housing conditions, charge you way too much for rent. I mean, maybe if you're like a part of the old guard, like typical UV student who's like parents are millionaires and can pay for you to live like $1,000 a month at the standard, that's fine. But like UV is also increasingly a diverse student population and many people are on financial aid or putting themselves through college. like. Like that sucks for us as well, like to get ripped off. Um, if we can increase affordable housing throughout a, a, the whole citywide market, um, everyone would benefit very much. Do you also think though it's because, I mean in part, students are only here for four years and one of the challenges of tenant organizing amongst students is how transitory the experience. I mean, you have a horrible landlord, mm -hmm. but then you're, you're gone. It's not, and, and so I, I'm wondering, you know, is there a way to build an organizational apparatus that can ensure sustained involvement on issues such as tenant rights, um, housing conditions, changes mm -hmm. in public mm -hmm. policy, and then help build that infrastructure to ensure mm -hmm. that both students remain active and as well um, that organizations can partner with orga other organizations like FAR um, in the city on common issues and common concerns. Yeah. Yeah, I think you definitely hit on like a perennial issue um, with a lot of uh, just student action generally is the high turnover rate. Um, even at, at UVA, you know, everyone comes in and loads on grounds their first year. So that's a, f a full 25% of their time at UVA that, that they're really like physically isolated from um, a lot of the realities of uh, social and political inequity. Um, in the community, but at the same time, I do think that if that if the infrastructure were to get implemented um, or built up through collective action um, with a critical mass at a certain point, um, we don't necessarily have to be pessimistic that it would Im immediately peter out. Um, I mean, UVA is perhaps infamous for its affinity of things like tradition or kind of uh, organizations continuing on and on and on. I, ad infinitum, you know, things like the honor committee or student council, um, something like a student tenants union or a student community tenants union, if that were to get going, um, perhaps we could redevote some of that um, otherwise nefarious love of tradition um, to maybe creating a new tradition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I would just, you know, I would add, uh, I think, you know, the city has a responsibility uh, as we're looking at the affordable housing crisis, and, and a lot has been done. There's been a lot of uh, pressure put on the city that, so that affordable housing is, uh, is a priority for the city, and that's been over a number of years, and I think you can do that uh, as student organizers here at the university so that every conversation eventually says, well, how does that relate to affordable housing? Mm -hmm. And I think there's, there's a ton of value in finding some kind of mechanism for students to, uh, to organize around uh, the cost of living uh, in student housing. Um, I know from experience as a, you know, when, when I was younger and a lot of young folks from Charlottesville do this when they're out of high school, um, just finding their way around, um, some of the most affordable housing they're gonna find is at the university. Mm -hmm. So 
I would encourage you to seek out folks in your development or in your your building um, who are you know community members, uh, and that's where they wound up living. It's a it's a bizarre experience. I gotta say, um, it's a different world living over on this side of town, um, and and uh, you know. Me today, you tomorrow. We hear that a lot from our friends in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 cost of rent in Charlottesville is deeply connected to uh, the student housing market. So your your rent uh, is is tied to to other folks' rent, and and something really needs to be done about it. I mean, it's just getting worse and worse. So as we develop a housing strategy, um, Charlottesville Low Income Housing Coalition really needs. Uh, some of that, I think, some organizing from uh, folks at UVA, and, and we have a few folks involved with that. But uh, I, I think that means More that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much um, for that discussion. So right now we're going to move into the Q and A portion. Uh, we have two Facebook questions lined up, but um, while we answer those questions, please think of your own questions. So. <laughs> Hello. So um, I'm going to read a couple of these Facebook questions, and then uh, we're going to pass it on to the audience. So if you guys have anything you want to ask our experts, feel free, and I'll just come around with Mike uh, for you guys. So our first one from Anna was, Brian, you mentioned how students are often gentrification apprentices. Uh, Can you explain how UVA students have been indoctrinated into the system? Uh, You touched on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think it still garners some discussion. Yeah, I guess the um, kind of the main way that that process manifests is um, when uh, developers, well, first the university by not providing enough on-grounds housing and then developers kind of step in to cater specifically to students and say, hey, you want to live in these um, luxury apartments um, on West Main Street, which is a street with a very um, long and vibrant history that is kind of erased from the pre- erased by the presence of those um, apartments. Um, when students step in and then uh, maybe rent apartments there, um, that kind of, uh, I guess, normalizes that process of when they then graduate and then move on to like another city um, down the line um, that is surely also going through the same sorts of uh, gentrification um, as in Charlottesville because it's a nationwide phenomenon in urban areas. Um, they might bat an ILS at saying, um, I don't really have a problem moving into like an area um, that is undergoing gentrification and displacement. Um, it, it, it basically just becomes like a normalized process for them when they are first like exposed to that uh, as an undergraduate student. Um, and then our second question from Reggie, and definitely something I would like to know myself is, uh, what has City Council done to alleviate the housing crisis? Well, they haven't done enough, <laughs> uh, but that's okay. Uh, things are changing. We we have had a huge public uh, push to address this issue, and it's it's had a huge effect on the City Council. Um, they are about to pass a budget uh, that puts in about $10 million into affordable housing. Uh, a lot of that's going into public housing redevelopment. Uh, and Friendship Court redevelopment uh, and some other places. They, they need to do more. It takes more than just public housing uh, and it takes more than just redevelopment because after all, you know, at the bottom level, we're really just talking about maintaining what we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so a whole lot more needs to be done, but they are putting money into it and they are uh, developing a housing strategy 
uh, based on some pretty clear data that freaked everybody out. They did a, a study and it showed uh, just how many poor folks there are in this town that need housing. Uh, and some folks just wanted to give up from there, but some of us said, you know what, this is, this is a problem. We've got the numbers, now we, now we know what we gotta do. And so uh, they're working on developing a housing strategy and they're working hard with community partners to make that happen. So their, their willingness to allow um, activists and organizations uh, and advocates to get involved in this conversation to find something that works, that's comprehensive, uh, is pretty cool. I'm a little worried what happens. We're going to definitely have three new counselors on the next mm -hmm. council. Uh, I'm a little worried uh, that a lot of this momentum might get lost. Um, but I do, and I, I worry about the public, and I want to make sure the public is really on board with this. Um, still a lot of foot dragging, still a lot of like, we just don't want to do it. It's too much. But, um, but they are starting to put some skin in the game, and it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's a good thing. Um, well, this is just my question, actually. Um, pretty interesting. But UVA here has a great urban planning department. Uh, do they work with the city of Charlottesville in any way whatsoever to kind of implement a more progressive or forward-thinking uh, program? I was going to ask Andrew. I don't know. Nope. <laughs> Brian, you're the one writing the history of this. Yeah. So. It can be hit or miss, for sure. Um, I do know there is one professor, she, I unfortunately never had a chance to take a class with her, she was on sabbatical this year finishing up her book, but Barbara Brown Wilson, um, really, at, le at least from my knowledge, I, I believe she does some really um, wonderful work, uh, especially in, when, in the Friendship Court area with Piedmont Housing Alliance. I, have, you ever, have you ever worked with um, Professor Brown Wilson? Okay, cool. Um, she's wonderful. If you are... Um, going to be returning as a student in the fall, um, she's going to be back teaching, um, I would definitely recommend um, looking for her classes and maybe signing up for one if you're interested in learning um, about sustainable community resilience. Um, I think she's also, she might be doing like a planning application course that uh, maybe works hands-on in the Charlottesville community as well. I believe her ecological democracy class in the past has done that. I've had some friends take that and um, just couldn't speak highly enough about it. Um, yeah. Oh, so oh. <laughs> I was I was also going to mention though in response that um, UVA has a very checkered history, in particular yeah. with yeah. regards to the, the period of urban renewal, which we've referred to earlier, and, and it's roundly condemned as a disaster um, in every city that it touched, and, and one that had devastating consequences, in particular for communities of color. It, um, you know, Earn the, the name you know, Negro removal um, because that oftentimes was the end result. But it's important to remember, and this is why it's relevant to, to issues and policies and plans uh, being battered around today, is that at the time, urban renewal was being pitched as something that was going to be good for the black community. It was, and, and sincerely, it was something that, pol that public officials and cities across America said, this is in your best interest, this is going to be great for you. And there was numerous promises being um, you know, battered, you know, being handed out and discussed, and but we see now not only were um, was you know, 
where the promise is not kept, but um, the disastrous consequences were great. And also as well that um, underlying this were a set of, of, of interests that were oftentimes not being discussed. Um, and we see what ultimately was, was driving the uh, destruction of Vinegar Hill. It was not out of concern for pu the public health of the African-American community or any of the sort of things that were being said at the time as to what was motivating them to engage in what they called slum clearance. Um, it was clearly designed with um, it, you know, interest of you know, economic development of the downtown, clearing out what they saw as a blight on um, local downtown commerce, a whole host of things that were not in the interest of the African-American community. And I say all this to say is that there's so many instances today, and Brandon and, and certainly knows from you know, being at many a city council meetings, where policies, programs, plans are being um, tossed out and presented to the community as being in their best interest. And this is gonna be best for you and, and trust us. And, and I guess that's again a question I have as well to think about for all of us is, you know, how do we um, as students, as citizens, as activists, ensure that um, those promises are kept and that there's actual real substance behind the very policies that are being advanced. So uh, you're absolutely right in the strategic investment area uh, neighborhood around downtown is a really good example of um, a real top-down strategy and while we do need to plan it's who's making the plans it's not just about reaching people and getting them to do it but actually changing the power structure uh, for implementation of this so it's not just input into a, the plan but actually uh, allowing communities to be empowered to develop plans to develop property, uh, that's something that our organization uh, is moving towards. And, and you know, I mentioned the contract that we have signed puts real decision-making power in the hands of residents um, on on big questions. There's nothing that's not on the table that uh, that residents aren't one of the decision makers on, and that that's pretty new. But I think that's vital for almost any community to be able to have those things, to have their own community development corporations um, by and for the people to be able to build their own wealth, to be able to make their own plans and be able to implement those plans. Uh, and, and that's a power issue more so than a, a planning issue or, uh, or a money issue. But of course, planning and money are a huge piece of all that. Mm -hmm. And Denise is here. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. There you go. <laughs> Fashionably late. Um, unfortunately, I was late. I had another commitment uh, tonight with the um, Unity Day events that's going to happen in Charlottesville. So I really apologize for being late, but I'm glad I could be here. Um, so I showed them the trailer for the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Yeah. Could you give us like a five-minute um, remarks, any remarks for the remainder end of the time? Sure. So um, I'm doing a documentary called A Legacy Unbroken. It's the story of Black Charlottesville. And what it's really going to focus on is um, how black people were actually doing despite the barriers, issues and policies that were created for them to um, struggle. And as you've seen in my um, trailer, and which one did you show the... Um, it finished with Old Black. And then okay. So that's the teaser. And um, I'm walking through my old neighborhood where I grew up. I grew up in West Haven. And um, he's very familiar with West Haven. He's on the housing committee. And, um, you know, it's just, it, 
people of color have been through a lot in Charlottesville systemically. And instead of showing the negative, I think it was really important to show the positive. And I came up with the concept that I was going to do this documentary after August 11th and 12th because I think so many people were focusing on giving uh, white nationalists a platform and instead of really telling the truth of why they chose Charlottesville. And if you really start to peel back the layers of why they chose Charlottesville, this was absolutely the perfect place because of what this what this city has done to people of color and the the, the, the setbacks and um, the policies that have affected us in ways that uh, generationally we haven't been able to overcome a lot of that. And uh, that was the part of the, that was the narrative of the story that was not told in any news article, in any um, documentary that was done about August 11th and 12th. Nobody really wanted to talk about the systemic issues that this city has put on people of color. And it was important to me to show that regardless of what we went through, we were able to excel and that people were doing exceptionally well and how reconstruction was a really positive time for black people. And you never really learn about that in the history books when you learn about reconstruction and how um, Mr. Bell and Mr. West mm -hmm. and um, they had came up with this concept uh, and Mr. Inge had came up with a concept uh, for people of color and they created the Piedmont Industrial Land Corporation and how this corporation was put in place to encourage black people to purchase and buy land. And these are things that people don't know about is that there were groups of people of color that were doing positive things in the community and that when Vinegar Hill was actually taken and the homes were seized from people of color that their homes were in just as much the same condition as someone home in Belmont, um, but they still lost their homes. And how they only paid them $2,000 for their home, but the land of Vinegar Hill was purchased for $1.8 And so these are things that you never really hear about and that are never discussed. And so that's something that I wanted to cover in my film and talk about and show people you know, we were doing well at one time, but if you had to go from being a homeowner to being thrown into public housing, and then when you put everybody in one particular place, and now you're you're throwing everybody in one place, and then you're limiting jobs, and then you're only giving five black people an opportunity out of 40 of them, then that's where the, the other problems will come into play. And so... Um, I'm doing the final edits on my film now. I hope to release in hopefully the end of April, early May. I'm going to say May, um, but I'm completing that project. And I have my shirt on. This is my shirt. So this is like the logo for my film, which shows the old Vinegar Hill, a couple of black businesses, Top Hat and The Leech. Um, and this was this was actually like Main Street. Mm -hmm. So this was Main Street back in the day, like near Main Street, Vinegar Hill section. And um, I just really hope that it really puts a different spin on when people talk about Charlottesville that we can be included because 
we've paid our dues and we've done a lot to contribute to the success of this city, to the success of the university. And while I'm thankful that a lot of like Monticello, UVA, the city are being inclusive and wanting to talk about, um, you know, the, um, they just had the memorial for at UVA, the enslaved, um, laborers. enslaved laborers. I couldn't think of it. <laughs> um, while, while I'm thankful for that, I, I still think that we, we definitely need to show just a little bit more love. And like when you walk into the rotunda, you should see some of the families that actually built the rotunda. And as you're walking up those steps, you should see those families who, you know, their children had to suffer while their mom and dad went outside and, you know, laid those bricks for us to be able to go in and and appreciate and love, um, you know, the architecture of the rotunda and the lawn. And so I, I just hope that my story can put that spin, you know, can start spinning in a lot of the conversation that happens around Charlottesville. I think it's important and I think it's necessary. And I think we're living in a time of truth. And I think that a lot of people are um, open to wanting to be engaged in a way that they get that truth the right way. And so that was my job to do that film, to put that out there. Thank you. I'll definitely be in attendance with Premier. So we have time for two more questions. Um, one for Sam Rice in the back. And Hi, I'm Katie. I'll be asking Sam's question for him because he doesn't have a voice. Um, given UVA's fiscal history, won't the university just pass the cost of housing subsidies along to students? How do we address that issue given the fiscal constraints many students face, as you noted? I actually talked about that specifically in my thesis a little bit. Um, everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think a big way, I, I kind of hinted at this earlier, but like UVA has the strategic investment fund sitting there. It is, I mean, people often kind of, like just kind of blindly criticize it as like, oh, like that's UVA's slush fund. It is that, but it's also been like a pretty consistent way that the UVA, that, that UVA has um, provided significant amounts of funding for things like new scholarships, new professorships, like new interdisciplinary research initiatives. Like UVA has already demonstrated a history of taking large sums of money from this fund that is accessible to it and using it to fund um, like quote unquote, like innovative whatever projects. But like one of the criteria for projects that can be funded um, by the Strategic Investment Fund is things that promote like um, economic development or equity and like I just can't imagine a better way like to promote um, economic development and equity especially among like historically marginalized populations than like making a huge development or making a huge contribution to public housing redevelopment the affordable housing fund generally a consistent payment in lieu of taxes program um, and I think you're absolutely right that like we should be very skeptical of the university just passing these costs on to sorry 
um, passing these costs on to students. Um, certainly some students are rich and wealthy and privileged, um, but increasingly others are not. We need to be, um, we need to be mindful of that. But I think uh, using the strategic investment fund as a way to at least ramp up into some sort of long-term um, negotiation with the city um, or public housing redevelopment, et cetera, um, using the strategic investment fund to ramp up to that would mitigate like kind of an initial shock cost that could get passed on through tuition or something. Um, UVA's annual operating budget is massive also. Like with time to adjust, um, it can make those payments. It's just not choosing to right now. Uh, do you have one more question? Hi, my name is um, Taylor Thompson. Uh, a couple of you guys mentioned um, the city council budget just being mm -hmm. um, released with the $10 million being mm -hmm. allocated towards affordable housing. Um, most, if not all of that, was done towards public housing while mm -hmm. home ownership was almost zeroed out. And so I was curious what you all thought with public housing being more of a temporary fix, whereas home ownership is more of a generational long-term fix where you think the value lies? So I think that they allocated the 10 million too because of the conditions of Crescent Hollows and you know Brandon can mm -hmm. probably um, attest to this as well. Um, I think that we're I, while I agree that they should force home ownership more we do have to look at the current cost of housing in Charlottesville, that it would be almost impossible that even if they did allocate money to home ownership, where would you purchase? Mm -hmm. And what would you be able to afford when you're making below a living wage on particularly most jobs? Um, they do allocate money for Habitat and Piedmont Housing Alliance. Mm -hmm. But again, we're dealing with home programs that Habitat can build, let's just say 10 homes a year, mm -hmm. right? 10 homes a year, but you have a backlog or a backlist of people that are waiting for those home those homes from possibly 10 years ago. Um, and they're only building 10 a year, but they started that program like mid-90s here. And um, PHA, once again, that's a that's a program that promotes home ownership as well, but you you can't afford anything in the city. And so then when you start getting into other programs like BHDA, that's pushing you 20, 30 miles outside of Charlottesville because that's restrictive of where you can actually get that particular type of home loan. Um, so I feel like they allocated the $10 million to redevelop the, the current housing um, neighborhoods that they actually have now, like Crescent Halls. Now, I'm an advocate for West Haven being redeveloped first because one is the oldest community. It's in the worst shape. Um, if you ask me. However, because it was built with center blocks, it's more sturdier. And so they feel like, hey, we can wait to redevelop that because that's not going anywhere. Let's start with Crescent Halls. But I think they were strategically thinking what would be the quickest fix to allocate more housing to make it better to help the current situation that we're dealing with right now. Charlottesville and Crescent Halls is just dealing with a lot. And even though it's one of the newer communities. It's mm -hmm. still in just as bad shape. Um, I'm going to just touch on this a little bit and then I'll let Brandon speak. But I think that also goes to show that we're getting developers or, um, you know, contractors to come in and build these communities and they're building it like the least expensive, right? Because Crescent Hall is the newest 
one of the newest communities, but it's in the worst shape. And so what does that tell us? We're, we're bringing people in that are building basically inadequate homes because they're not lasting. That They shouldn't need to be remodeled first. They should be able to allocate that $10 million to Hardy Drive, but instead they're allocating it to Crescent Halls. So I think that we all, while I'm grateful that they did give $10 million, I think that we need to be very, very cognizant of making sure we bring in the right people to do the right work, to do it in a way that it's going to last. Now, West Haven is in a worse shape, but those center blocks are still there and will probably last through any hurricane, tornado, or whatever. But... We need people that are going to build something that's built to last and not just built to be temporary. And so um, they, they definitely need to focus on that a lot more. But, I mean, I'm thankful for the $10 million. That's a big step from what's been happening in the past. I think public housing has just been um, overlooked in the past. But we also have to think about the federal government, the role that they play. It's, it's not but so much city council can do when the federal government and HUD has to play a part as well. And I'll let Brandon finish up. Yeah, I'll just be super, just super quick. So, um, yeah, public housing redevelopment is needs to be a priority for the city as it grows. We really need to start with who's been left out for the, the longest. But uh, it's absolutely true. We need all types of housing uh, and all different tiers of housing. And the city has a real responsibility to get some money into that game. They have an affordable housing fund. It's underfunded. They need a steady stream of revenue to make that happen and use it strategically. Because right now, yeah, public housing would be great if it was temporary, but there's nowhere for anybody to go. And now we've got 1,200 people between Section 8 and public housing waitlist, unduplicated 1,200 people uh, waiting for those homes. Uh, and, and that just has a, a, a bottom-up just effect on the market. So if we can get 4, 000, make 4,000 homes affordable in Charlottesville, whether we build them or make them affordable, um, that's going to have an effect on the market. And if the university can look at that as well, then we're really talking about uh, influencing the market in a way that will hopefully uh, have enough there for everybody. It's, it's going to affect middle-class people as well in this town who are also going to get priced out. You know, everybody else is, if we don't address this now, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And, um, you know, anybody who works here to do all the dirty work is going to live 30 miles away and, uh, and the rest of this town will be, you know, million-dollar homes. So. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for our panelists, and thank you for you guys. Um, I know we're a little bit late, running late. Um, we have food outside, and I just want to say another thank you to Andy, Balthazar, Metro, Roma, Tyler. This concludes our live episode, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Woohoo!